Um, it's a privilege to be able to come and to, to speak this morning. It, it, it feels like, uh, I can be so honest, like big shoes to fill, and it is. But it is uh, a great honor to be able to come and to, to share this morning and to fill in for Bill if that's possible. So uh, let, me, let me pray for us and ask God to, to bless our time this morning as we continue to worship and, uh, and hear from his word. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that this morning as we come, we come with the great truth, the reality of the risen Savior. He is risen. He hasn't just has risen. He is alive, and he is alive in our lives this morning, and he dwells with us as his people building his church, building us individually and corporately. And Father, that's why we're here this morning not just because it's Easter, not just because we like to put on ties and nice clothes, but because we want to come and meet you, because we need to hear from you. We need to be reminded again of the truth that you have raised Jesus from the dead, that he is alive and he is alive in our midst. And so this morning, that word that became flesh, that word that you have given to us in written form that carries that the power to transform our lives, would you use it this morning to transform us, to, te- to remind us of truth, to change not just our behavior, but to change our beliefs and our understanding. Would you change our affections? Would you enable us to want what is good, to value you and to live our lives for you and to lay aside those things that have no value and to thirst for that which is truly quenching? And so would you give us yourself this morning and teach us from your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can open your Bibles to, uh, to John chapter 4. It's misprinted in your bulletin. John chapter 4, we're going to read 1 through 26. I wanted to make one correction in, this, in the, um, the flyer. Uh, the Campus Crusade banquet is not the 15th, it's the 25th, Saturday the 25th. So please make note of that um, if you want to be a part of, of that uh, fellowship dessert. So it's the 25th, not the 15th. So... Um. John chapter 4, I'm going to read 1 through 26. Great story, powerful story of this woman that Jesus comes and and, and meets with. Um, I want us to look for a couple things, even as I read, just to be watching. I'm going to make a couple points, of course, from this. The, The text is so rich, there's a lot of points that we can make. But I want us to watch the dialogue Look at the dialogue of Jesus with this woman. Look at the way that he pursues her. Look at the way she tries to uh, evade him, avoid him. And look at the way that he finally in the end gets her. Verse 1, chapter 4, John. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near a field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. For the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. 
The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. John doesn't want us to miss the point of his gospel. He doesn't want us to misunderstand what he is trying to communicate to us. And so he ends his entire gospel with a very clear statement. If you'll turn with me to chapter, chapter 20, we're going to read the statement of, of what the point of this whole gospel is about. Verses, chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, he writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. A number of years ago, I was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ. We spent a summer, several summers in Mexico on missions trips. And I learned a little bit of, of uh, Spanish. Um, fair, it wasn't great, but I could communicate a little bit. I oftentimes depended on those who could speak English, um, um, Mexican that was, that, that, that could speak English so I could communicate with them. Well, I was in a situation, and oftentimes when I would run into a person that couldn't speak much English, for I couldn't speak much Spanish, I figured a way I could at least communicate the gospel, uh, at least in a real basic essence of the form. And so oftentimes what I would do is I would want to communicate to them that Jesus is the very core of their life. It's the very foundation of their life. And so I would draw simply a picture on a piece of paper. And I, you know, this is a casa, right? A house. I uh, got that down. And then I would draw a little foundation underneath the house. And I would say, uh, Jesus is, is, is this, you know. And I would say, what is this? How do you say this in your language? And one individual came and I was talking with. And I said, what is this? And, and he gave me a word in this, in this time. And I began to use it and saying, Jesus is this. He is the, intending to say, Jesus is the foundation of your life. And throughout the course of that conversation, I realized that there was some sort of disconnect because of the confusion on his face, and he just didn't seem to get it, and he would make some comments, and I went, something's awry here. And so I, I, should, I did what I should have done to start with. I, uh, I got a dictionary, and I looked up the word that he had given me in Spanish to find out, what word am I using for foundation? And I found to my horror that 
I was telling him that Jesus was the garage of his life. <laughs> that Jesus was the garage of his life. And I found out why he was so confused. And I still have this fear in my mind that some kid's running around Mexico with this new heresy that Jesus is an attached garage of our lives. And John doesn't want us to do the same thing. He doesn't want to be missed in translation. That what Jesus is is the very core, the very center, the very foundation, the very life of our life. And he says it's by believing that you might have life in his name. And this story that we look at, the story that we're looking at this morning of this woman at the well, this woman from Samaria, we see a couple themes that are, that are tied in to this story that help us understand who Jesus is and the offer that he has for her and the offer that he has for us. First of all, we see that there's this, he offers her eternal life. And so we, this, is a, this is a key theme throughout the book of John. And it's tied to him that eternal life comes from only one place. It comes from Jesus Christ. And that's a key theme about 26 times throughout the book. Also, we see this theme, this picture, this metaphor that is a, a very well-used biblical message or metaphor of that of water that he used as he wants to communicate to this woman, he uses water. And it's a biblically loaded image. And certainly if we live today in the Middle East, if we lived in that area where it was very dry and very arid, where um, sources of water were not very plentiful, that indeed water would be a very vivid and very powerful image for us. And as it was for them. And so Jesus uses this, this metaphor. Entire scripture uses this metaphor in many different ways. We see that water does lots of things throughout scripture. It saves and it judges. We see that water um, is present and available to those from God in the wanderings of the Israelites. As they would be in a dry place in the desert and they would cry out for water and God would give them water. Either miraculously through a spring or he would give them water that had been bitter. He would make it pure for them and sweet for them to drink. And so God is the one that provides this water. We see water as an image of cleansing throughout the scripture. And we see that water itself is a picture of God giving life to his people. And if you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 12, we'll look at just a couple of references in Isaiah as they look, as he looks forward to the salvation that God gives. And he, he uses this metaphor again, chapter 12 of Isaiah. I'm going to read verses 2 through 4. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and will not be afraid. For, the, Lord's, for the, the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim uh, that his name is exalted. And so you see this picture that, that the waters of salvation is that well that we draw from. That life itself is, is pictured as water. In our response of reading this morning, we, we saw that, that this invitation that if anyone is thirsty, come and drink. Jesus had the same invitation in John chapter 10 or John chapter 7 as he says, If you're thirsty, come to me and from you will flow rivers of living water. And he referred to the Holy Spirit. It's the very presence of God in his people. And so as we understand this biblical metaphor of water, as we look at this story of water that's used by Jesus in, uh, as a... As a an illustration, we see that it's the water of the very life of God that he is offering, that he is referring to. The immediate setting, though, I want us to get, we have the woman at the well in chapter 4, 
But I, I'm going to touch on this in just a moment. But in chapter 3, we have Nicodemus. We have this encounter, this, this interchange that Jesus has with, Nic with Nicodemus, who was one of the ranking rulers of Israel, the officials of, of Israel in that day. He was a wealthy man. He was a powerful man. And what John does for us is he contrasts in chapter 3 and chapter 4 two people that Jesus interacts with. Nicodemus, one of the highest officials that you could have, and you have this Samaritan woman, one of the lowest, the, the, the most despised people of that day. And so we have a contrast that is established by John for us that's there, and it's important for us to see. Opposite ends of the socioeconomic, moral, religious spectrum between these two individuals. And the section of chapter 4 concludes with this, this story as the woman seems to trust in Jesus, to see him as the Messiah, and then she goes back and tells her town, and the entire town comes back and says, surely this man is the Savior of the world. So this helps us to see chapter 3 and chapter 4 of what's happening. The story of the account I want to look at this morning, again, there's lots of different ways, different facets to the story, but I think what's at the heart of this story for us, the story comes to those who are thirsty. And so stories you read for that, if you are thirsty for something more than what this world has to offer, it's a story that gives us an answer. It's an offer for us of life. Because as we drink of the waters of what this world offers, as we taste of what's out there, as good as it might be, we're still left thirsty, just like this woman. And Jesus has something to offer. So as we're here this morning worshiping, as we look to God this morning, this Easter morning, we want to remember where real life comes from. Remember what truly satisfies in this picture for us is a powerful one. Great encouragement for us. We're going to see in this story that Jesus relentlessly pursues this woman. He pursues her because he knows her condition. And then he offers her living water. He offers her life that is everlasting. So he pursues her. He knows her condition. And he offers her something that which is satisfying. In the story here of Jesus, he's traveling, right? He's traveling from Judea. Whatever the setting happens to be, the, the Jews are kind of all up in arms because he's got more disciples. He's heading back north to Gal Galilee, and you have um, Samaria right in the middle. And as he's heading north, um, Scripture tells us that he has to go through Samaria. Samaria is this region uh, was generally um, not visited by, if you were a devout Jew, it's associated with the northern kingdom. And what you have is a, is a mixed group of people who had, were mixed Jewish, Gentile, and ancestry. Uh, they were conquered. The, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Syrians. And then they mixed and intermarried. So you have mixed um, in marriage. You have mixed religion. There was a sense of which they syncretized. They, they, they took different strands of religion and kind of made their own. There's an issue, and we see it later on in this in this dialogue when she asked about the location of, of, of their worship. And you see that she asked about the location and they worshiped in one location, Mount Gerizim, and that the, the Jews worshiped in Jerusalem. And so you have that as an issue and as well as many other things. But there was an ongoing conflict and that they were generally despised by the Jews and were to be avoided at all cost. And so we see the surprise at the woman as Jesus initiates and asks for a drink that this is surprising to her. Now, a devout Jew would generally try to avoid Samaria. He would go off to the east, and he would go around Samaria to get up to Galilee if you're heading there. And just to give you an example, um, if you were a devout Jayhawk, a devout KU fan, and you were on your way to St. Louis, 
okay, and you wanted to avoid being unclean or defiled in some way by the, the city of Columbia, okay, you might go by way of, say, Arkansas or Iowa to get there. Well, that just gives us a little picture of, of the, the kind of way that, much worse, sorry, I'm not going to use that example anymore, but anyway, the... It's a picture of how they would get there, and they would, they, would, they would want to go around this location for fear of being defiled or unclean in any way. So the setting here is Jesus. It's noon. It's the hot time of the day. If you know this story, you know this setting. You never came to draw water at noon. It was hot. You would come in the morning or the evening when it was cool. And that you would, and if you wanted to avoid people, if you wanted to avoid being in the, in the, uh, context of other people you would come at noon and you see that this woman is there the disciples had gone into town and Jesus is here tired and he initiates with this woman and you see this pursuit and if you'll look with me now at this dialogue I want to walk through this as we consider the dialogue I want us to think about this I want us we don't have a lot of pictures we're not very agrarian maybe some of you have grown up on a farm I know I don't know a lot but I have a picture in my mind of a shepherd and a shepherd and a sheep and what it looks like for the shepherd to move his sheep in the right location. At any point, they're trying to, to be, you know, to get outside of his control, to move away from him. And yet the shepherd gently, relentlessly, kindly directs his sheep. I have that picture in mind in this conversation. And so see if you will see this also with me. As he initiates with the woman, there's this kind of surprise. Why would you initiate with me a woman from Samaria? And Jesus responds, in verse 10, if you knew who I was, if you knew what it was that I could give you, in one respect, he says, you would be even more surprised. You would be more surprised if you knew who I was. And you would ask me for what I can give you. You would ask for the water that I can provide for you. She's kind of unbelieving and incredulous at this point. Here's this tired man sitting, thirsty, physically thirsty, asking for water. And yet he says... If you ask me, I could give you living water. And she says, where are you going to get this water? It's a deep well. You don't have anything to draw with. Where would you get this? And then she asks this question with just a hint of sarcasm. Are you greater than our father Jacob? Are you greater than him? And, and the construction there is such that the answer is no, of course you're not. And so you see her unbelieving. You see this kind of sarcasm as she interacts with him. As he offers her this living water. But Jesus continues, he's unfazed by her unbelief, he's unfazed by her sarcasm, continues to move towards her. And I think the beauty of this passage and the beauty, if you think about Jesus' interaction with anybody in the Gospels, John opens up his Gospel with what? That powerful picture of the Word made flesh, the Word that through which everything was created. And so you have this woman before him who he knew intimately, who he knew perfectly, and so he pursues her. He made her. He knows her thirst. He knows all about her life. He knows her needs and he wants to use this picture of water, this picture of living water that he can offer her as, a, as an illustration for her to help her understand what it is that he can give her. And so he offers her this living water, but she doesn't quite get it, right? He says, the water that you drink, you'll be thirsty, but the water I give you, you will not thirst again. This water I give you will be this spring dwelling up into eternal life. She doesn't get it. All she can think about is, is not having to come back to this well and, and to, to draw water again. And she says, give me this water. I don't want to make this trip every day. This isn't fun for me. It's hot. It's disgraceful for me to come. 
give me this water so I won't have to. But Jesus goes further. So we see in verse 16, he says, go call your husband. And of course he knows what the story is. He knows the story. And so she wants to avoid the situation. She wants to avoid having to disclose who she is. And he wants to demonstrate, however, her need. He wants to demonstrate how he can satisfy what has been unsatisfied in her. He wants to bring a kind of, of joy where there is no joy in her life. She hides the truth with her response. I have no husband. But Jesus says truthfully to her, he says, you have had five husbands and the one you're with now is not your husband. He explains why she's drawing water at noon. He explains why he had to come through Samaria. This is a little bit close for, to home for her. If we could hear her, understand what she's thinking. What's going on here? How's this guy know who I am? She says, I see you're a prophet. She doesn't really want to go and disclose her whole life to this guy. So she changes the topic just a little bit. Topic to place of worship. It's not an unimportant question to her. It's just a little more distant from her. And so she asks, you know, this issue of where they should worship. Jews worship there and we worship here. What's the answer? If you know this, you can tell me. The beauty of this is Jesus goes with her. He goes with her on this question and the the beauty of every question you ask Jesus is you know what the answer is, right? You know that where he's going to lead it, it's going to lead back to him. That the answer to every question will come ultimately. And so he continues to guide the question and the answer back to the one that can only provide for her this living water. He gives her some discussion here. He, he, he honestly answers her question about worship. She changes the, the, the topic one more time at the very end. Verse 25 she said, I know the Messiah, the Messiah is coming. And then he proclaims, he reveals who he is. He goes with, he says, I am he, I am that one. That one who knows all about you. That one who can answer your questions. But I am more than just that, I am the one who can satisfy your thirst. Like a shepherd with his sheep, he continues to pursue them. Knowing the need, knowing her greatest need all along was for himself. Jesus kindly, he relentlessly I might add, sovereignly pursues his sheep. He is at work in her life. He is at work in our lives this morning. It's a great picture, isn't it? This one who is after her. So much so he would have to go through Samaria. C.S. Lewis has a line in his autobiography where he says that man's search for God is like the mouse's search for the cat. It's one of my favorite lines from Lewis. And it's a picture of who pursues who. We don't have to look long. It is God who is searching. It is God who is pursuing. Indeed, if you look at his, his, C.S. Lewis's autobiography, two of his chapters as he describes his conversion are entitled Check and Checkmate. And he has this picture of God hemming him in as God forcing him to quit. And I'm going to read just a quick couple verses from, a couple lines from, uh, from Lewis. As he describes his conversion, he describes what it feels like to be pursued by this relentless and kind God. He says, the demand was not even all or nothing. Now the demand was simply all. You must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene night, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. 
did not see then what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. This woman ultimately responds. She ultimately is brought into, if you will, the fold. She ultimately recognizes him as the Messiah. Indeed, so much so that she goes back and brings her whole town to meet this Jesus. Do you know what the best and most reasonable thing to do if you're being pursued by a kind, relentless, sovereign king? You know what the most reasonable thing to do if a sovereign, relentless, kind king is after you? You give up. You surrender. You put your hands in the air whether you want to or not. And you say, you are in control. And in the end, that's what this woman did. She recognized, I can't get away from him. There's only one place to go. As believers, he continues to pursue us. He continues to conquer our hearts because they need to be continually conquered. As unbelievers, for those of us who have not trusted Christ, he is pursuing, he is at work in our lives, revealing our need for him, our thirst for him, and conquering us. It is time to surrender. It's time to give up because we don't have any hope apart from him. So Jesus relentlessly pursues because he knows her condition. He knows the state of her thirst. We see the state that's clear. We know the five husbands. We know the one, the one man she's living with now, that she is an outcast from Samaria. She is a woman. The distance is great between Nicodemus and her. She is the lowest of the low from human perspective in this respect. And whether her husbands all died, whether they divorced her, we can see the well from which she is drawing. It's from the well of relationships. And we can see that she is not satisfied. We can see her condition clearly. But I want us to, to look back up just for a second and bring in Nicodemus to the picture and to the lens, if you will. What you have John doing is, is contrasting these two individuals. Nicodemus, the highest of the high, this woman at the well, lowest of the low, placing them within chapter apart of each other. In both cases, Jesus interacts with them. In both, G in both cases, Jesus gives them the exact same thing, talks to them about their need for eternal life. In both cases, they misunderstand him. So you have a contrast and there's a couple things we can draw from that. One, we can find that Jesus is able to communicate to the highest of the high and the lowest of the low. It's a great picture, but that shouldn't surprise us, right? Because he's God. He should know them. He knows exactly how to communicate to them. I think what is even more striking in this passage is not the differences, but the similarities. It's not that John is trying to contrast them. He's trying to help us to see, the readers to see, that these two individuals are in the exact same condition. They have the exact same need for Jesus. They have the exact same need for the eternal life that only Jesus can bring. They have the exact same kinds of questions. The same thirst that only Christ can really quench. And whether we happen to be the president of the United States, the pope of the Roman Catholic Church, business leader, political power, whatever we are, or the lowest of the low, the outcasts of our society... We are in the same condition. Every last person finds themselves in the same condition before God. Guilty of sin. Broken by sin. And thirsty in an unquenchable way apart from Christ. All of us need only what Jesus can offer. All of us need the water that he provides for us. And these three respects are sin dealt with. The brokenness dealt with and healed. 
and our thirst. We see the woman was certainly immoral. The beauty of the story is that Jesus calls out the situation, right? Five husbands living with one now, adultery, fornication, but he doesn't shame her. He doesn't do that to somehow judge her on this point. He reveals her sin only to reveal her need. He reveals her need for him. But there's guilt there. There's brokenness, right? She's hiding from the pain of failed and broken relationships. She's coming at noon. She's hiding from Jesus. There's brokenness that's there, though we don't know a lot about her. She's also thirsty. Thirsty in a way that nothing on this earth can satisfy. Thirsty in such a way that nothing in time or space can satisfy. Only Christ can provide. Only what he gives her will truly satisfy. And each one of us in this room on the same condition. The beauty of scripture, right, is that 2,000 years ago, it speaks to us today. The condition of humanity then, the same, the condition of humanity today. Guilty of sin against God, broken by sin, either our own sin or the sin of others, and unsatisfiably thirsty, looking for that which satisfies. This woman looks to relationships. Nicodemus looked to religiosity, to adherence to the rules, to the laws. We have lots of ways as well that we seek to be satisfied, seek to appeal to God. We find life in relationships, material possessions, alcohol, sexuality, perfectionism, religious duties, and adherence to the law. All these things are an attempt on our part to satisfy ourselves and to, in some way, try to merit standing before God. But they leave us short. A couple months ago, I was listening to an interview on sports radio, one of the stations. Um, there's sometimes some good things that come out of that. My wife always laughs when she'll get in my car and sports radio on, and she'll hear these guys just going at it, you know, about something that's just not important. And she goes, it sounds like preachers or something, arguing about something. And as Dr. Harvey says, that sports is the most important thing that doesn't matter. Um, that <laughs> Something good came from this uh, time I was listening to it. They were interviewing a guy named Gary Eustachie, who uh, was a former head coach at Iowa State. And he was talking about his alcohol problem. He had gone through rehab and, and was describing his alcoholism. And he was trying to describe it in such a way to help the listeners understand what the nature of this thing is. And this is what he said. He said, you know, as an alcoholic, and he would still identify himself as one, recovering. He said, I didn't just want one beer. He said, I didn't want just six beers. He said, I wanted a thousand beers. I wanted a thousand beers beers and we see the picture and the nature of the hole that's left in our lives we see the thirst that's there so much so that a thousand cans of alcohol could not satisfy because we misunderstand the nature of our thirst we find ourselves looking in places that do not satisfy our condition of God is guilty broken and thirsty and only he can truly provide this and that's what Christ offers this woman he relentlessly pursues her he knows her condition and he offers her the only thing that will truly meet her need. The only thing that will meet the guilt that she has and the brokenness and the thirst. And he uses this picture, this metaphor of water. This, this physical, tangible picture of what he does for her. Now sometimes being physical beings, I should say spiritual beings with physical bodies, we mistake spiritual thirst for physical appetites. And we think that we can satisfy our spiritual needs in physical ways. And so we go down that road. 
And yet Jesus says, no, there's, there's something spiritual that our deepest need has to do with a relationship with him. It has something to do with knowing him. And, he, and so he offers this water to this woman. And he says, if you drink of this water, you will be thirsty again. And so we shouldn't be surprised that if we drink of whatever else that the world offers, that it's just not enough. We will be thirsty. That's the way that things work. There's nothing we can take in will completely satisfy our appetites. So we shouldn't be surprised. But he says, the water that I will give you, you will never be thirsty again forever. Indeed, it will be a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he gives us a picture of this internal spring. The spring that he plants inside of us that is perpetual. An ongoing provision of water of that which quenches us. And indeed, if we look back at, at the Old Testament, we understand that's the very presence of God that he implants inside of us. That quenches our thirst. That it's an infinite source of life from the infinite God. This water that's placed inside us cleanses us from our sin. Brings a healing from our brokenness. At the same time as fully and deeply satisfying. He offers us life that is eternal. That's what he offers this woman. He says, and it comes from God living inside of us. It's not just a well that we draw from. It's an overflowing spring of water of life that comes from inside of us. Not from us, but from him dwelling and living inside of us. This life isn't a promise uh, that all of our problems, all of our troubles, all of our difficulties will be gone. It's not a life where we, you know, plaster plastic smiles on our faces and walk around and act like nothing's wrong. This woman will still have to come back and draw water. She will still be subject to the reality of living in a world that has fallen. But the reality is there's a life that Jesus offers her and the life that he offers of us that's above and beyond all circumstances. There's a quality and a quantity, both, that he offers. A duration as well as a qualitative difference, an infinitely qualitative difference. It's a life of hope. It's a life in which no circumstances can change the fact that we have this life. Nothing can take it from us. It's a kind of joy and satisfaction that goes beyond the, the circumstances of our world. And we rest in that. If you've met and been around people in the midst of the difficulties, maybe you spend some time with Bill Vogler. Maybe you've been in other situations and you've watched them walk through those who are clinging tightly to Christ. You realize what that joy looks like. You realize what, how it sustains, how it's there. This day, this Easter Sunday, we celebrate Christ's resurrection. The fact that he died and that he rose from the dead in a bodily way. And that death provides for us the atonement, the, doubt, the dealing with our sins. Our, our guilt has been covered. The wrath of God has been poured out. But the resurrection provides, if you will, the assurance of all those things. As we see what took place and we ask the question, what's the point of the resurrection? As my daughter asked me when I was writing the sermon, she goes, Daddy, are you going to preach an Easter sermon? I said, yeah, <laughs> from a different passage. The point of the resurrection, right, is that it's the assurance that all that Christ did for us is complete. Right, that the, the, the stone was rolled away, not so Jesus could get out, right? But that we could look in and see, oh. He's risen indeed. Confirmation that our life, that his life and death was sufficient to cover our sins. That our consciences have been cleansed before him. 
That sin and death, therefore, are no longer our enemies. That the one who trusts in Christ, those things have been done away with. They are no longer enemies that, can present, that prevent us from knowing God. And we sang about it time and time throughout the verses and the, and the readings that we've had already. And it gives us this great assurance. The life that God gives is eternal. That the resurrection is a picture of the confidence that we have. That it is not subject to anything in this world. The life that he gives us is not subject to anything in this world. No circumstances can, can take this from us. And so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Death doesn't have the last word. Resurrection does. And the life that Christ promises for us. We see that Jesus pursued this woman relentlessly. We see that he knew her and he knows our condition. And he offers eternal life. He offers it to those who believe to continue to believe in those who don't believe. He says, believe on me and you will find this, these rivers of living water that come. But the beauty of the resurrection, they affirm and confirm all those things. But it's, it points towards something else. The resurrection points farther down the road. It's a reminder of something else we have. It's, it's a reminder of the taste we have, but we anticipate even more of the life. Of the day that the presence of sin will be no more. The day when our brokenness will be fully healed and the day when our thirst will be eternally quenched. Today it's satisfied on an ongoing basis he provides for us. In that day it will be completely, fully, exhaustively quenched as we drink directly from him in his presence. And Revelation 22 gives us a picture. I'm going to conclude with this verse. If you turn with me to Revelation 22. We have a picture Revelation picks up on this theme of water as well. I dare say it's probably not physical water. It's life. And so we see this picture from this vision of John 1 through 5. New heavens and new earth. We have, as he sees, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. And the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp. Of sun, a lamp of lamp or sun, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever. Do you see what's flowing from the from the throne and from the Lamb? The water of the river of life that God offers, that He alone. We receive it this morning by simply trusting in Him, by simply believing that it is a gift, and there's nothing we can do to earn it. All we can do is receive from Him. That we are in the presence of one who is relentlessly, kindly, sovereignly pursuing us. Knowing exactly our need and providing exactly what we need. Let me pray. Father, thanks that you have promised to provide us all that we need. That the thirst that we experience is satisfied in you. Father, help us to believe. Help us to enable us to surrender our lives to you. To drink from the fountain that truly gives us life, not makes us more thirsty. 
Help us to drink from that water that quenches us, that cleanses us, that heals us. Help us to rest in you this morning. Father, as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, help us not to just allow that to become so humdrum, so much something we just do each year that it doesn't dwell in us each day. Father, help us to enjoy, to truly live in the reality of this life that dwells within us, to enjoy the satisfaction and enjoyment that comes alone from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.